This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Amanda Vanstone. You're on Radio National. This is Counterpoint. The Indo-Pacific wasn't spoken of as a region many years ago. Now it's all the rage. Just imagine the volume of shipping that goes through the region. And now imagine the value of all those goods floating around on the ocean waves. Mamma mia. Regional groupings can be a source of great comfort to smaller nations. Feeling a part of a larger whole can give that comfort. Others, like China, may well be suspicious that the groupings are all about strengthening alliances elsewhere. And bananas. I like them. A quick, easy snack that come in their own biodegradable packaging. But I haven't, up until now, thought I was shelling out some welfare to banana producers when I buy them. If you've bought some honey lately, unless it was from a local beekeeper, you might be concerned about just how good it is. Well, honeybees aren't the only bees, or insects for that matter, that produce sugar. Wasps. Yes, ouch. Wasps do as well. But first, to the screaming crowds in the swill of the internet. Is it, as our next guest says, boorish old bullying? masquerading as justice. Well, we're only human, aren't we? I mean, I know we're meant to keep an open mind, but it is such a luxury. It's like a hot bath when you read something that confirms your own view. It feels like you're going home in some way and your heart opens up and you feel warmer and happier. Well, that happened to me recently when I was reading an article by Madeleine Grant. She's a political researcher at the Institute of Economic Affairs in the United Kingdom. Let me just read you a part of it because there was a comment about the decline in people who nominate as being a part of an organised religion, and that would be me. I'm a bit off organised religion. And the article says, Yet the decline of certain organised religions has been accompanied by the emergence of a powerful new morality, with none of the redeeming qualities of the old one. Characterised by a rigid adherence to politically correct standards, a dismissal of the value of free speech, and the elevation of the principles of identity politics above all else, it has its own sins and its own inquisition to seek them out on social media. Stunning stuff. I had to talk to this woman, and here she is, Madeline Grant. Welcome to Counterpoint. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, okay, why do you think people are not nominating themselves as being committed to a particular religion anymore? Well, because they're not, obviously, that's why they don't nominate it, but why are they not? Well, I think that there has been a general decline in most countries in the developed world of religion, with America being one big exception to that rule. So it's been on the decline for some time. And I think in Britain, at least, there's been a switch where lots of people who did not actually go to church, but were kind of culturally Anglican. And I think what's changed recently is that in the most recent survey, people have begun nominating themselves as being of no religion. So I guess the, the things that once bounded them in terms of identity to the church have kind of whittled away. I'm not really sure what the precise reason for that is. But I would say that it's been happening in most countries in Europe for some time. Uh, Certainly in Australia as well. I mean, I regard myself as someone who lives by Christian principles, but I don't attach myself to any particular organised religion. If anything, I'm really annoyed with them because I think they've been arguing amongst themselves for so long that they've forgotten what their real job is. 
it's a bit like politics, actually, where people think of the parties arguing with each other. You look at religion and think, oh, really? Do you really care if I'm Catholic or Anglican? Don't you actually just care <laughs> yeah. if I'm a good person? Isn't that what matters, whether I do nice yeah. things for people? Anyway, let's get on to this new religion. Now, you've got to be aware of causing offence, don't you, on Twitter? Oh, boy, yes. Everywhere. There is quite a few people in Britain have written about this, but there is essentially a kind of virtual mob that stands lying in wait always to pick up on anything vaguely objectionable that anyone might have said on Twitter and then to pile onto them. And in some cases to put pressure on their employers to sack them and to encourage them to be basically... You know, if they have some kind of public role, for them to use that public-facing role. And the reason I used the religion analogy was that I'm not a Christian, but I was raised in the Church of England. And, you know, for all the reasons I left the Church, one of the things that really struck me as a positive was the forgiveness aspect of it. You know, like the story in the Bible where Jesus, they're going to stone the woman to death, and he says, let you who is without sin cast the first stone. There's a complete absence of that in this Twitter mob mentality, because essentially... It doesn't matter if you're sorry. It doesn't matter if you misspoke or if your remarks were misinterpreted. All that matters now is that someone wasn't offended. So they started to judge the severity of a crime based not on what you actually did, but how it made other people feel, which is a really worrying precedent, I think. Mm. Well, let me be a bit more cynical than that. How other people say it made them feel. I'm personally sufficiently cynical enough to think that there are some people out there, not all, but who, seeing this new phenomena, see an opportunity to exaggerate the degree of hurt they've felt. Yes, yes, I think that is definitely true. There was a case in Britain recently of an education expert, a guy who set up numerous free schools and he's done a fantastic job of it. And he's a conservative, and I'm pretty sure that the Twitter mob went after him. They scoured his Twitter to find some, you know, pretty boorish, pretty sexist things that he'd said a few years ago. And they kicked up such a fuss that he lost his role as a school regulator and his role in setting up these free schools, which had been doing a wonderful job of helping deprive kids in West London. And, yeah, I'm pretty sure, as you say, they went fishing for it. They exaggerated how they were feeling in order to get him removed. And I think they should be careful what they wish for, because it doesn't matter whether it's the right or the left deploying this. Once you've started that precedent for, you know, casting people out of public life on the basis of feelings or purported feelings, you're opening the door for a lot more of this to take place. Sure. Um, And the thing about that is, well, the whole Twitter sphere is not like a court where anything is put to proof. So you can allege a degree of hurt and it's just taken as being true, whereas you can't go into court and allege that someone caused, I don't know, $200,000 damage to your house. You have to show that they've done that. So none of it this Twittersphere court, have any of the protections that the rule of law normally offers. There's another one I don't know about, and that's Lionel Shriver. What happened there? Well, Lionel Shriver, she's a best-selling author, and her most famous book is one called We Need to Talk About Kevin, which was made into a film. But she's been really, really critical of this whole culture war. And I can't remember exactly, I think it was her publishing house, which I think was Penguin, but don't quote me on that. She basically condemned her publishing house or a publishing house because they were trying to impose some kind of diversity quota to new writers. It was, again, this whole idea of identity politics. In doing this, they were basically implying that only people, for example, who are black could write about the struggle of a black person. 
only a woman could write about sexual assault. That's kind of the logical conclusion of what they were saying, which is obviously ridiculous because Lionel Shriver made a living writing about the story and we need to talk about Kevin is a teenage psychopath who is a teenage serial killer. You know, the woman, despite what the left has been saying about her, is not a teenage serial killer. This is the arguing for there to be a return to the whole point of writing is imagination. And I think, you know, this identity politics thing goes far enough. It implies that we cannot understand, we cannot empathize with anyone who's not exactly, exactly the same demographic box as that. But I think she was doubly concerned about when that approach was then taken into the world of literature because the whole point of literature is that it's imaginative. And once you take that away and you have an identity politics literature, I mean, can you imagine what that would do to the quality of literature? It'd be terrible. Just terrible. I'm talking with Madeleine Grant, a political researcher at the Institute of Economic Affairs in the United Kingdom, about the original sin of being born a boy. Well, you describe all this, what happens on the Twittersphere, as bullying, masquerading as justice. And I can't think of a more articulate and clear way in which to put that. But then you go on and talk about when you look at the anatomy of public outrage, it's got a lot in common with religious guilt. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, so what I meant by that was the fact that it's kind of quasi-religious. I've also spoken about how there's a real lack of forgiveness, a lack of ability to kind of confess and be absolved for your crimes. So in some ways it goes worse than religion. But they require you to confess your sins in a kind of public way. So Mm -hmm. it's not just possible. You have to issue a groveling apology always in order to rebuild your life, Mm -hmm. even if what you've done isn't deserving of an apology. And even after the apology, they may or may not take you back. And it's religious in the sense that when people in the Middle Ages messed up, they would often see things like going on a pilgrimage, you know, in a really public way to go and perform their devotion. And I think it's kind of similar to that in the way that Mm. we expect people to perform their apologies. Mm. When this crowd talk about unconscious bias, you know, you're rich and white and you've got this unconscious bias, you poor darling, you don't even know it, but everything that comes out of your mouth is laden with that. And it follows, if you believe in this, I think, falsely idea of unconscious bias, that it completely overtakes someone, there might be an element of it, then it follows, as I think you've said, that the rich man at his castle to the poor man at his gate, they've got no ability to understand each other. And I can't accept that, that the poor man at his gate or the rich man in his house have no capacity to understand yeah. a life other than their own. I think humans are smarter than that and more empathetic than that. I completely agree. It's really sad. And this is a line now that is mostly peddled by people on the left side of politics. What's really sad is that in the old days, the left wing tended to fight for ideals that were a lot more universalist. It was about, for example, we show solidarity with these people who are going through this struggle in a different country. And according to the logic of identity politics, you now can't do that. We cannot empathize. We've lost that ability to bridge the gap, which to me is, you know, the very opposite of what progressive politics ought to be. It's highly conservative, actually, in the sense that I'm a conservative. I don't know if there's anything wrong with conservative, but it's mostly conservatism in the way that it thinks that everyone should kind of stay in their box and not empathize or change or reach out to people who are different to them. Now, look, I'm not a reader of texts like Chaucer, but you tell me in the article that there was a partner in Chaucer's work who was flogging fake holy relics and that that's got a similarity with today too, con men selling wellness. What's that story? So 
Yes, in the Middle Ages, people would sell fake holy relics, knowing that they were taking advantage of a social context in which people were deeply religious, and they would fork out for these things on the off chance that it, you know, it might help them get to heaven a bit faster. Um, there was also a practice where, in Middle Ages Britain, that rich people would actually hire teams of monks to basically pray for them. So they could afford to be a bit naughty because they could basically buy their way out of that situation by paying yeah. monks to pray for their souls. Now, I saw on Twitter recently, it was almost too good to be true. I couldn't believe it was a real thing that people were actually doing. But there's this camp, like a summer camp for men that you can go to in the States. And it's basically for men who feel like they might have fallen prey to patriarchal values. And the idea of this camp is that you can kind of go... You can have talks and you can talk to each other about how you might have been, you know, knowingly or unknowingly showing toxic masculinity in your day-to-day life. And you have to pay, I think it was close to $1,000 for this weekend-long retreat. Now, that smells sort of awfully fishy to me. <laughs> the idea of paying 900 quid to be absolved in some kind of male crime that you get just by virtue of being a man. This is exactly to me like the fake holy relics that get people to heaven. You can kind of pay to purify yourself as manhood. Yeah, well, I understand the thing's called women teach men. I mean, well, I wouldn't be forking out the $900 for my husband to go, even though I think he could learn a few lessons. He can learn them from me, not paying $900 to some people to sit around and sing Kumbaya, forget it. And it's also, you know the people that would pay to go on this course are precisely the people who don't need to change in, in the way that they envision. Anyone who pays $950 to go to this thing, I'm guessing they're already quite woke and they're not likely to be toxic patriarchal figures. They're probably no. a nice husband to do the dishes and help with childcare. It's just quite funny, but that's, a mark of the situation that we're currently in. And I think it's partly because when you start to blame male problems on like a third party, i.e. the patriarchy, you end up in a situation where you can kind of pay to have that demon cleansed from you. In some ways, it takes away the responsibility of men as individuals because you can blame any shortcomings you have on patriarchy rather than I messed up because I messed up. Yes, yes, the failure to take responsibility. Yeah, and actually, I don't know if you've been following some of the recent developments with the Me Too movement in the States. But I've noticed the number of occasions where plain people who've been kind of called out by the Me Too movement have, in their apology statements, they blame things like, I'm a sex addict, I need to cleanse my demons. And obviously it's hugely cynical and we know exactly what they're doing. But it is also, I think, partly a product of this thing of, you know, depersonalizing patriarchy, turning it into this third party that you can then blame rather than taking individual responsibility. So someone like Harvey Weinstein messed up, not because he's a bad person who did terrible things, but because he's a man. Well, I have to say, Madeline Grant, I enjoyed the article and I've enjoyed talking to you even more. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Away from the swell of the internet and on to the Indo-Pacific. think of the Pacific Ocean, what do you think of? Probably, I don't know, Fiji, Hawaii, New Zealand maybe, I don't know, Japan, United States. But then when I say the Indian Ocean, what do you think of then? Sri Lanka, India, is that all? Many people have got the idea that these two great oceans on which Asia borders might actually form a region and be a very powerful region indeed. Lots of shipping going on there. To talk about 
the Indo-Pacific idea and whether everyone's in on it, we're joined now by Priya Chako. She's a senior lecturer at Adelaide University. Priya Chako, welcome to CounterPoint. Thank you for having me. Well, the Indo-Pacific is a big idea that everyone wants. It seems to be. A lot of political leaders have adopted this idea. Yeah. Think tank types love Mm -hmm. it. However, there has been a few problems in terms of how it's been operationalised. Okay, well, let's put the think tank types aside. They're very important, but let's go to the sort of countries involved. What are they doing? Okay, well, Australia's been a real champion of the Indo-Pacific idea. It's adopted the term into Mm -hmm. government. DFAT Mm -hmm. uses it, Defence uses it. It's also trying to build a relationship with India, which Australia thinks is a key country in the Indo-Pacific region. Mm -hmm. India, in turn, is trying to improve its trade links and economic links with the ASEAN region, the Asia-Pacific region. It's put a higher focus on Australia as well. Countries like Japan love the Indo-Pacific idea, in particular because it brings India into the political sphere. So you can sort of see that there's a trend forming here. These are all democracies that are championing this idea. Mm -hmm. The United States in particular, under the Trump administration, has adopted the Indo-Pacific terminology and loves it as well. So the key country that's left out of these discussions, but it's the elephant in the room, is China. Mm -hmm. So the concern is that it's China that's integrating the Indo-Pacific region. It's involved in the Pacific Ocean politically and economically very heavily. It's involved in the Indian Ocean Rim region as well, politically and economically, through its Belt and Road Initiative. So people are worried that China is going to be setting the rules for this emerging sort of mega region. Yeah, but does it talk about the Indo-Pacific region? China? China China refuses to use the term Indo-Pacific. Now, why? Why? I mean, I just don't get it at the moment. You've explained that there's a pattern of the democracies being in favour of this. That's good. And that China isn't speaking about it. And yet China is, in effect, doing it. Yes, So why is it doing it but not speaking about it? Well, because the term has been championed by Shinzo Abe, Mm -hmm. Japan's Prime Minister, but also Indian think tanks in particular and Australian think tanks and political leaders. And China perceives this as a term that's meant to target China, to contain it in some ways, to stop China from being able to impose the types of rules and norms that it wants on the region. So it perceives the Indo-Pacific idea as being a specifically anti-China concept. Doesn't seem that way to me. I mean, that might be an offshoot of it. Obviously, stronger regional groupings anywhere limit the power of others in any region, whether Mm. it's China or someone else. If you get groups coming together and coalescing with a common interest, they have a louder voice. You know, I think kids in primary school probably understand that in the schoolyard. Yes, and and there are people in China who say that they are the key country in the Indo-Pacific. They're the ones that are in both oceans and they are the ones that are integrating the region. So actually China should start using the Indo-Pacific term, but it's not done it officially. So Mm. it might change in the future, but at the moment it's perceived as a very political concept that's really about containing China's influence in this region. Mm. And Indonesia's got quite a strong interest because... As I understand it, what they see as the opportunity here is a great opportunity to build trade and foreign investment in Indonesia. 
Yeah, they think that India is a potentially important trading partner. Mm. They think that the Middle East can also be really important for Indonesia's development. Indonesia is very focused on building infrastructure in Indonesia, so it wants foreign investment. Is it fair to say that while things might not have gone sort of great guns forever with Indonesia starting off with trade initiatives with ASEAN and it all going well and then tapering off, that no one should worry about that because very few relationships and in particular trading relationships start off, go really well and stay that way for the rest of their life. They Mm. all have ups Mm. and downs. And, And so we shouldn't be too worried about ups and downs in any of these agreements. In terms of ASEAN, no, I, you know, Indonesia's biggest trading partners are in the Asia-Pacific region. But what Indonesia wants to do is try to build some links to the Indian Ocean Rim region. And that's not really taken off. Mm. And India likes the idea? India likes the idea. Big time. India has been trying to integrate its economy with the Asia-Pacific region and the ASEAN economies for a long time. It's had a look east policy since the 1990s. It now has an act east policy. It has a free trade agreement with ASEAN. However, it really hasn't got much out of these free trade agreements that it's got with Asia Pacific countries. So there's been a bit of a backlash against them recently. There's also a major push in India to build up local manufacturing industries. And that's meant reimposing protectionist barriers. I'm talking with Priya Chako. She's a senior lecturer in international politics at the University of Adelaide, and we're talking about the Indo-Pacific. What does it mean and who recognises it? And what about the problems of the investment climate in these two countries? I don't know enough to say whether it's the same in Indonesia and India, but I do know that if I won lotto and had a million dollars to invest overseas, I'd be a bit careful about both of those countries. Yeah, certainly the investment has not come flooding in. India has improved its ease of doing business ranking recently. It has gotten a lot of commitments to increase investment. However, it really hasn't turned into concrete developments, particularly from countries in the Pacific region. The country that is investing in India increasingly is China. Interestingly, and the country that's investing in Indonesia is China. So again, it's really China that's at the heart of this regional integration. You mentioned earlier that it was Shinzo Abe that first coined the term. Is that a desire by Japan, its interest in this, to be a part of another group that has some power in the region and therefore to keep some sort of balance within the region in terms of power plays? Yes, I would say that that's uh, an accurate perception. Japan is actually the biggest investor in infrastructure in South Asia, for instance. Mm -hmm. It's investing much more money, in fact, than China is at the moment in infrastructure building. And it's particularly targeted India to try to bring India into Asia-Pacific institutions and try to get India to conform to existing norms and rules in the region. And clearly that is an attempt to balance out China's power in the region. So maybe China's entitled to feel a little bit... mm, mm, mm. I think it is, yeah. When you look at the sorts of countries that are adopting this term, the United States, Japan, Australia, these are the countries that have gotten a lot out of having a US-dominated and led rules-based order in the Asia-Pacific region. 
And they want to preserve the status quo in that sense. They want to preserve the rules that have served them well. It's understandable from both sides. So it's understandable that China can get a little bit offended by this as well because it has genuine grievances with how US power has been projected in the region. Mm, I get that, although I don't mean to be sort of unforgiving of the Chinese having that attitude, but you know, they're pretty realistic. You'd think that they'd understand that you know, there's a lot in this for countries like Indonesia and mm. India and other countries in the region. So yeah. why wouldn't they support this and go for it in their own interest, not in some, you know, geopolitical power play thing? Look, I think they are. And they are implicitly supporting it by investing quite a lot of money mm. in these two regions. They're just not buying into the terminology the idea that we're going to create a rules-based order. They just don't buy into that language because it doesn't suit them. So no. that they are implicitly adopting this idea of regional integration in the Indo-Pacific region. They're just not adopting the formal terminology. Yeah, okay, fair enough. So everyone's on the same boat. They just mm. don't call the boat the same thing. No, and there are some issues that need to be sorted out. So what are the rules going mm -hmm. to be? What are the norms going to be? China just doesn't want the United States, Japan and Australia to be enforcing the status quo, which they think is unjust toward China. And to an extent, India doesn't buy into the rules as they exist either, and neither does What's, Indonesia. What sort of rules would China, India and Indonesia want changed? Well, this is a good question because no one actually has specified what the rules are that Australia, Japan and the US are actually defending. There's some sort of vague commitment to free trade, mm. but what does that mean? Free trade mm. means quite different things in it's the United States, people, Japan sure. and Australia. Yeah, right, and under the Trump administration particularly. Right. So actually it's in everyone's interests to start from scratch and actually think about the rules that we want. So instead mm. of insisting on a rules-based order and never actually defining what the rules are, perhaps we should be a little bit more conciliatory in how we approach this concept. Mm. Well, look, this is not my field, so this is the voice of ignorance speaking, but from the outside, which can often offer some sort of clarity, getting away from mm. the trees, I look at the big institutions like the World Bank, the IMF, the WTO, and I think, well, how long do you guys think you can keep excluding really strong emerging economies and just dictate to everyone else how things are going to run. Yeah. It's just not smart. I mean, if you have any group, forget some sort of world order, just look at a normal group. If you see people growing up capable of being a part of the group, you don't invite them in. You've got to expect trouble. Yeah, that's right. And we've already seen a move away from those institutions. So now instead of looking at a global multilateral trading system, we're starting to see the emergence of preferential trading systems in different regions. So in Indo-Pacific region, it's now the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership that's being negotiated. We have the Trans-Pacific Partnership now. Both of those agreements actually challenge, you know, WTO yeah. processes, mm. World Trade Organisation processes. We're starting to see the emergence of the Asian Infrastructure Bank as well, which is going to challenge the influence that the World Bank and the IMF has. Okay, so I think we've got it. When we think of the Pacific, we should think a lot more than many Australians do, which is mm, a holiday. And when we think of the Indian Ocean, a lot more than, well, India, Sri Lanka. We've got to smarten our act up and get this Indo-Pacific lingo in our head. And once that's in our head, the full impact of what that would mean if we could 
get the countries there to really work together as a region and have the full force that would come from that. That'd be a good thing, I think. But anyway, that's only my view. We've been talking with Priya Charko, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Adelaide. Thanks very much, Priya. Thank you for having me. Oh, there's the soapbox. Well, what's getting me this week is the blurred line. Is there a line anymore between journalist, commentator and activist? As so many people using the title journalist now are. Why do we have to hear more about what a so-called journo thinks about what a politician said than we do hear from the politician themselves about what they want to say? We hear so much more from the media in Australia than from our representatives. And with respect, many in the media talk about politicians with sneering disdain. Now, occasionally, you can see why. But these guys have all opinion and no accountability whatsoever. i just like to hear more about the issues, what the politicians are saying, the people you elect, and cut out half of the commentary that is frankly designed to bring our parliament into disrepute. Now, I know you might say they do a pretty good job of doing that themselves, and every now and then they do. But just think of the substantive issues. How much do you get to hear from the politicians, and how much does the media tell you what the politicians have said and what they should have said? I'm sick of it. Oh, yes! We have no bananas... Do you use the expression, you're driving me bananas? It's a very polite way to say something else, a bit more serious. Anyway, I quite like bananas. I think they're pretty good. I enjoy them. I don't buy the ones with the red wax on each tip. I don't know why, but I don't. And I like them ripe, but not black. In any event, as you know, we grow bananas. The question is, is this just sort of some welfare scheme or what? What is going on here? Would we be better to just import bananas all the time? There are people who produce them all around the world. It's an interesting question, especially, I suppose, if you're a banana farmer. Anyway, we're joined now by Gigi Foster. She's Associate Professor of Economics at the University of New South Wales and, incidentally, co-presenter of The Economists on Radio National, second season, starting in October. Gigi Foster, welcome to CounterPoint. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Okay, growing bananas, predominantly Queensland, any in New South Wales? Very few. So about 90% of Australia's banana production happens in a reasonably small area of far north Queensland, Mm. which is very, very prone to cyclones, as Australian consumers may remember from cyclones Larry and Yazzie. That's right. And when there's a cyclone like Larry and Yazzie, the price of these things goes up, up, up. That's right. So you go to a shop for bananas right after the cyclones and you'll see that bananas are priced at somewhere north of $15 a kilo, which is way more expensive than in non-cyclone years. And actually that observation was partly what motivated the research project that we're talking about today. Mm. 
So not many overripe bananas in the fruit bowl so mum can whip up some banana muffins. <laughs> at, at that point, you buy the bananas and each kid can have one and that's it. Yes, or maybe you buy some other fruits. So maybe you just go without bananas. But in any event, you're less well off than you would be if you didn't have to pay as much for those bananas. Okay, now why do I have to pay that much for those bananas? Well, it's a classic situation where we don't have competition in the banana industry, and that means we are not shielded from the impact of shocks to supply. Cyclones are shocking supply. They are disrupting the supply chain because they wipe out, on average, 30% of the banana crop. That's, you know, a big cost for the suppliers to bear. And then we feel that cost in the rise in prices. And of course, Australia prohibits the import of fresh bananas from overseas. So there is no competition from overseas suppliers to our domestic producers. And in that sort of situation, any economist will predict that there's going to be a consumer welfare loss. Sure. Now, let's start with why do we ban the importation of bananas? And I can go to the Adelaide Central Market. Mm. Not wanting to be parochial here, but it is one of the best markets in Australia. I think it probably is, actually. I totally agree. I used to and, live in Adelaide. I oh, love did it. you? Yeah. Right, okay. Well, I can buy cherries now before they're ripe locally. Mm-hmm. Yep. I can buy peaches and nectarines out of season. I don't because I'd rather eat them from here in season, but I can buy them. Mm-hmm. Yep. So why can't I buy overseas produced bananas? Well, it's an interesting question. We are told many reasons. So one reason that is supposedly unique to bananas is the disease argument. So bananas are clones and they are particularly vulnerable to certain kinds of diseases like the banana freckle, for example, which can devastate banana crops. Banana harvests, you know, can vary depending on different disease prevalence. Mm -hmm. Um, It's something you have to manage if you are a banana producer. Also, the history of banana production has featured some serious problems with disease. The variety of bananas we produce now, for example, is the Cavendish, whereas back in the 1940s, 50s, it was the Gros Michel, which went out of business because of disease risk. Basically, it just couldn't handle a particularly virulent disease, and so we had to switch away from that variety. So there is some vulnerability in bananas to diseases, and so that is then spun into a reason why we have to protect Australia, Australian farms, Australian production from foreign disease that would affect our bananas. Now, that's, of course, apart from the fact that we have seen banana freckle on Australian shores. It actually appeared in the Northern Territory. There are some banana farms there a while back, and it was you know, immediately met with a very strong response by the government. And there are, of course, many countries of the world that produce bananas and manage the disease risk. I was but, going to ask that. I mean, uh, if, of course. If, I mean, okay, I get it. Nobody wants to grow a crop that's devastated by disease. Mm. And so if you're growing a crop, you don't want anything bringing in foreign diseases. Mm. But other countries manage it, so why can't we? Well, indeed, one might even go further and say, if other countries are managing it, why should we? (laughs) In fact, Mm -hmm. the Philippines in our region is the most prolific producer of bananas. They export to, for example, New Zealand. New Zealand allows their bananas in, and they're very tasty and regular old bananas. And the Filipinos manage the disease risk and, you know, do all the supplying, and the New Zealanders do the consuming, and that relationship seems to work fine. So the question is really, what is it about Australia per se that, you know, makes us more vulnerable or something? And why do we need to have banana production in this country at all? If we didn't produce them, we supposedly wouldn't be so worried about diseases that would affect production. Sure. Now, do you think this is a case of farmers who, you know, say, well, my great-grandfather started this property, my grandfather farmed bananas, my father farmed bananas, now I'm going to farm bananas, Mm -hmm. thinking they've got some sort of historical 
entitlement to grow bananas and not being willing to shift into another crop? Or are there not other crops that you could grow in that region? Well, there are certainly many other crops that grow in that region, including sugarcane. And there's also a lot of ecotourism in Queensland. Um, there are other possible uses for the land. But of course, as in most cases of production in Australia, the labour is a very big portion of production cost. And the farm workers who work on those farms could work on other farms or, you know, go to other states to work on those farms. I mean, there are plenty of other things that could be done with the resources that are used okay, to produce so bananas. So why don't banana farmers do those other things and shift to something else? Because they've got a cushy situation at the moment. Cushy, I mean, ready market. Okay. Uh, they don't have competition. And, okay. you know, of course, there are going to be switching costs if they were to switch, but they're doing the logical, rational thing that, you know, any economic actor would be expected to do in a situation where you've got protection from the government. Mm. Okay. So what's the cost of this? The cost of the ban on imported bananas. Mm, so what we do, we collect a lot of data from a 14-year period from a variety of different sources on banana prices and quantities in Australia and also imported into New Zealand to get an estimate of what the world price of bananas is over that period. And we estimate the consumer elasticity with respect to banana price, which means essentially what percentage less bananas do you buy when the price of bananas goes up by mm -hmm. a certain percentage. And, of course, if that's not one-to-one, -one, if you don't move away from banana purchases commensurately with the rise in prices, then you are being hit somehow by that rise in price. You, know, you are actually paying that extra cost and being worse off as a result. So we collect these data and we do a very standard economic analysis of the welfare costs, both in terms of the consumer welfare costs that we've talked about, mm -hmm. and also in terms of the supply side, which is essentially how much more costly is it for us to produce bananas than it is for the Philippines, which is the closest mm -hmm. sort of, you know, regional producer that sets the world price in this area. And we find that the yearly average cost in that 14-year period ending in 2015 is approximately $170 million, so north of $150 million. Per, year. per year. And if you consider the number Ouch. of banana growers that we have, it's about 600 growers. So that averages That's about, about 3 million a week. Uh, yeah, it's a lot. So over the whole 14 year period, it's 2.3 billion Australian dollars. And that's about 80% supply side welfare loss and about 20% consumer side welfare loss. And so if you think about the number of growers, there are 600 growers roughly. So it's approximately a quarter million dollars per year per grower of an effective subsidy. Now, it's not a direct handout, of course. What we're estimating is the loss that Australia accrues because we produce bananas and have a ban on imports. Mm. And what would be the consequence of lifting that ban? I mean, would that mean devastation for our farmers because they just can't, as you say, with labour prices, mm. compete with imported bananas? Well, I think if we are going to lift the ban, which I do think is a long-run pro-social mm -hmm. thing to do, we should be very aware of the short-term adjustment costs for those farmers, as the government should do in any industry, which is having to transition due to market forces. We should provide you know, some assistance in meeting some of those transition costs for those farmers. So I could envision a grandfathering situation where we gradually allow more and more imports. And over that time period, we partially subsidized the switching of banana farming resources into other types of activities, you know, retraining and redirection of farming workers to other kinds of production. But I do think that in the long run, it would make sense to import bananas from the Philippines. And they'd love mm. it. It'd make us a friend in the region. Sure. Trade is a great form of aid. Absolutely. Really. Better, better to trade than kill with your enemies, yeah. Absolutely. Not that the Philippines are enemies. No, no, of course. No, but with any other nation, right? I mean, yeah. one of the reasons we have a reasonably peaceful world order now is because we trade so much with each mm. other. 
Okay, now let's get off the economics. You can't do that all your life. <laughs> What's your favorite <laughs> banana recipe? <laughs> well, I like banana smoothies, and yeah. my but son with yogurt, with yogurt, them. Or yogurt or ice cream? and yeah. yogurt and um, nutmeg has to be a bit of nutmeg in mm-hmm. there. Also, as an American, I like banana bread made sort of the American way, I guess, with kind of pumpkin pie type spices. Mm. And I just like having bananas fresh. I mean, I just I think like it's a fresh. great snack, right? And it's very hard to find a substitute for a banana. You know, it's easier to substitute for an apple or a pear, perhaps. But that's one of the reasons why Australian consumers suffer with this import ban on bananas is that it's hard to find a substitute. Yeah. Do you know, there's a very old fashioned recipe for a fruit type of pudding that looks a bit like an old-fashioned Christmas pudding, but it isn't. (laughs) You use some mixed fruit, but a key part of it must be something they call fruit medley here. Now, that's a mix of apple, apricot, and some other mixed fruit. Right. Put that in with some mashed banana, bicarb soda, milk, breadcrumbs, and away you go. It comes out as a pudding, can you believe? Well, maybe I should try adding banana to my traditional Christmas pudding recipe this year. That's a good idea. You'd have to cube it up into little bits. No one would want a great big slice of dark banana because it goes dark. Of course, but it'll be nice and moist. Well, as long as there's not a cyclone, maybe I'll do that. You never know. (laughs) Well... I'm pleased to say, Gigi Foster, that you haven't driven me bananas and I won't be able to stop thinking about bananas now every time I buy one. Whatever type I buy, I buy the the normal, what you call standard bananas in the supermarket and then I go to a Vietnamese grocer to buy the really little ones. The lady fingers, yes. Yeah, and smaller than that, even smaller. Oh, the tiny little sweet ones, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We don't grow those here, I think. Kids love them. Well, how do they get in? I don't know, actually. That's an interesting question. I don't think that we allow any imports from any place. So they could be just a petite version of the We must the grow them fingers. here. You just said you didn't think we grew them no, here. No, no. So in our data, we see that 80% of the production is Cavendish. It's 75 to 80%. And then most of the remainder is Ladyfinger. Now, there may be the odd farm that produces those little baby super sweet ones, but it's just very rare. I mean, I don't think I've seen them in Sydney supermarket shelves for a long oh, time. Oh, look, I'll send you a photograph next time I go to the huh. Vietnamese supermarket. Please do. <laughs> okay, thanks very much for joining no us, worries. Gigi Foster. Thank you very much, Amanda. That was Gigi Foster, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of New South Wales, driving us bananas with the idea that we should stop, stop preventing imports of bananas from overseas. In Indonesia, if you're completely mad, you'll have the sweet martabak. The toppings vary. Chocolate, bananas, condensed milk and honey. When you're a kid in the playground, did you have people saying honey makes you funny and beer makes you queer? Probably not. It's not politically correct. Probably now for children to tell that story. But in any event, honey has been in the news a lot these days whether what you're buying at the supermarket is actually honey. But what do you mean by honey? You and I probably mean honey from honeybees. There's a lot more to honey than that. And to find out about that, we're going to talk to Manu Saunders, a research fellow at the University of New England. She's recently written a piece, Wasps, Aphids and Ants the other honeymakers, and I instantly wanted to know more. Manu Saunders, welcome to CounterPoint. Thank you for having me. Wasps. I mean, you've got to be kidding me, don't you? I see a wasp and I'm the other way. I'm not hanging around to find out about the honey. (laughs) But look, let's start with the honeybee. People ignorant of this issue, not necessarily ignorant people, (laughs) might think that all bees have honey, but that's not true. So tell us about the honeybees first. Okay, so the honeybees is sort of a generic name for a species of bee in the genus Apis. 
So Apis mellifera, which is the European honeybee, is the one we are most familiar with. There are about seven or so species of Apis around the world in various parts of the world, mostly they're native to Southeast Asia and through to Europe and some parts of Africa, but obviously now they've been introduced globally, so they're found pretty much everywhere on Earth. The golden honeybees that we know, they're able to be domesticated. We manage them in hives. We produce honey from them. And yeah, we have a very long term relationship with honeybees. Mm. But it's not necessarily honeybees that are out doing all the pollinating, is it? There's a stingless bee that can go out and do a lot of that. And that produces a type of honey though, doesn't it? Yes. Well, there are actually thousands of other insects that also Mm. pollinate and are important pollinators. But stingless bees are the other alternatively called honeybee. So there's about 500 species of those around the world. We have about 10 Mm. or so in Australia. And they're mostly found along the East Coast and through northern Australia. So they don't live across the entire country. But they are also social bees. They live in colonies very similar to honeybees and they produce honey as well. Mm. And bumblebees make honey. I've only seen a bumblebee once in my life. It was in France in one of the Wargrave sites. Oh, yes. And it was like seeing something out of my childhood. You know, yeah. I'd seen it in fairy stories, but I'd never actually seen one. And there it was going, zzz, bumbling around, and yeah. it was They're a bumblebee. <laughs> yeah, very cute, I thought. Okay, now look, there's all these other bees, apart from honeybees, and other insects mm. that make honey, like, as you so softly mentioned in your article, wasps and aphids and ants. But it's not so easy to get the honey from them. We can't look to them for commercial production of honey, can we? As far as commercial production goes, yes, we're kind of reliant on the European honeybees in Mm -hmm. that sense because they are so easy to manage and domesticate and they produce a lot of honey. So I think, you know, an apis honeybee hive can produce kind of upwards of 50, 60 litres a year, if not more. Whereas, for example, the native stingless bees can only produce about a litre or so per year. So as far as commercial honey production goes, no, we can't rely on on these other insects, but they're still really important for a lot of Indigenous cultures around the world and they just contribute to the diversity of insects on Earth. Sure, and we might find ways, for example, with some of the ants, sugar pot ants and stuff like that, Mm. they could be not produced for honey but maybe harvested for non-Indigenous people to sample as well. Yeah, potentially, and... There's not a great deal of knowledge about cultivating, for want of a better word, of these honeypot ants, but Indigenous peoples were known to do this. It's kind of hard to think about how that would work on a mass-produced scale, but could definitely be possible on a smaller scale in a local region. Mm. Fair enough. Now, sometimes in movies, comedies, for example, they make a comedic instance out of a pregnant woman feeling she is so large that she just really can't get around. And you do hear that from women who are about to give birth, yes. that they've really had enough of it all. <laughs> but I, I look at some of the photographs of the ants blown up with yes. honey and think, honestly, right. pregnant women have got nothing to complain about. Yes. How many times their size do they know. blow they... up to with the honey? <laughs> they do look like something out of almost out of a cartoon in a sense. And the interesting thing about them is because ants are social insects, they also have a bit of a class structure like honeybees do and and other social insects. And the ones that produce these big bulbous bellies full of honey Mm. are called repletes. And that's their role in the colony. And they literally hang from 
the ceiling of the nest and that's their kind of role in life, in a sense, is to, to hang there the and be, and others will come up and be have filled up. Yeah, and so other workers will go out and forage and bring the nectar back and then top up these little storage pots with <laughs> more honey so they end up sort of growing bigger and bigger and, yeah, they're like a food storage system for the colony. Mm. I must say aphids hadn't really come to mind in the past as being a source of sweetness, but apparently they are. Yeah, so it's technically their waste products that they produce from eating the plant sap. So it is slightly different consistency to what we kind of think of honey as produced by bees in their colonies and so on. But they produce a similar sugary, sticky sort of substance out of their rear ends. A lot of insects feed on them. They've also been known to be used, not as commonly, but also used by Indigenous people in some areas. I've never been game enough to taste it, but it apparently tastes a lot different to what you would expect honey to taste like. So I imagine it would be an acquired <laughs> taste. Mm. But bees also make honey out of it. So there's sort of very specialty honeys in some parts of the world where the bees will be specifically put into an area of a forest where there's a huge population of these scale or insects or aphids that are producing lots of honeydew. And the bees will actually collect the honeydew and make honey out of the honeydew. Apparently, Again, some people say it's not very nice, but it is a bit of a specialty sort of <laughs> exciting thing for some people to get. Yeah, sure. I'm talking with Manu Saunders from the University of New England about bees. Well, not just bees, wasps, aphids, ants and other honeymakers. Now, in South Australia, in Kangaroo Island, they maintain that they have a particular type of bee and it's the only uncorrupted version of that bee that was brought here from Europe, Ligurian bees, Mm, that hasn't interacted with other bees. Do you think that's true? I'm not a geneticist and you would have to know a bit more about their genetics. Apparently that's the case, that the hives that are on Kangaroo Island were brought from the subspecies in Europe that are these Ligurian bees and they haven't ever interbred with the Mm -hmm. standard Western honeybee, which is found on the mainland. So, Mm. yeah. Have you had the honey from the stingless bee, which I understand is... A bit thinner, but stickier. Yes. It tastes very variable. It's depending on which hive you get it from and what they've been foraging on. So I've had it Mm. a couple of times. It has a slightly more fermented fruit sort of a taste than what you expect Mm, from... It's not sounding good. No, it kind of tastes like guava juice. So if you like guava... Oh, I like guava juice, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, the ones that I've had do, yes. So they do vary. Although when I've had it, it's been commercially produced, so it might mean I don't like it fresh. I don't know. (laughs) I haven't had it fresh. All right, so that's where we are now. We've got corrupted honey being sold in supermarkets, allegedly. (laughs) But would we know, do you think, with the sort of corruption that has been alleged to be in honeys that we buy commercially, would you and I know the difference? It depends. I mean, this is the thing with honey, that the taste can vary so much depending on what the actual insects have been eating. And you know that from, you know, the difference between leatherwood honey versus yellow box honey or, you know, when when you buy the varietals. So if there's a very, very different strong taste that you're not used to, you would potentially be able to tell. But I think a lot of the alleged problem with the honeys in the supermarkets have been that they've just been allegedly adding sugar, etc. So it would simply taste similar sort of sweet flavour or sweeter flavour. So it wouldn't be that strong, fruity or florally sort of flavours that you get with variation amongst different insects. Mm. Honey's got a sort of childish overtone in the sense that many people associate 
and Winnie the Pooh with <laughs> honey. It's a sort of childhood sweet treat, mm. if you like. Do you have any childhood memories of honey? Just that I did love it. I obviously grew up reading Winnie the Pooh books and mm. so I have that association. I grew up on the Sunshine Coast when it was less developed than it is now and there are a lot of local beekeepers and so my mum used to go to a local beekeeper and buy honey from his actual farm and I used to love going along with her and seeing him opening the hives and and getting the honey out. So he's obviously not there anymore. I think there's a housing development where his place was. My childhood memory is that Driving home from school, not me, I was the passenger as a child, <laughs> my mother, driving home from dropping the others off at school, my older sisters, she would say to me sometimes, are you my honey pie? <laughs> and I was expected to respond, if you're my honey bun. And somehow we had this weird connection that if we both said that, everything was okay. <laughs> Which That's was, of lovely. course, rubbish. The world was the same, but <laughs> one of those stupid little things that make kids happy, you know? All right, one final question. Did you get into honey or ants or insects? How did we end up with you writing this paper? Insects. So I'm an insect ecologist and I started off working on pollinators and I'm now since branched out into broader insect community ecology and I'm just fascinated with how many different kinds of insects there are in the world and all these amazing interactions with plants and other insects. So, yeah, it was a great opportunity to write something to share this knowledge. Mm. Well, I think you're going to be at the centre of the world's future food supply and protein supply. Anyway, I have to say, Manu Saunders, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this week. By the way, if you've got a really good banana recipe, send it in, will you? Thanks for joining us. Join us next week when we'll talk about that cartoon. In the meantime, if you have something to tell me, just go to the ABC site to Radio National and follow the prompts to Counterpoint. Last week, we obviously hit a nerve with the segments on forensics and innovation. Thanks for those comments. Until next week, this is Amanda Vanstone saying ciao, ciao.